This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Mia and Marty Shepard are two of the most well-known steelhead guides in the Pacific Northwest, and for good reason. Marty grew up on the banks of the Sandy River in Oregon, landing his first steelhead by the age of five. Mia grew up in Tennessee, chasing trout and hiking the Great Smoky Mountains. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss how they met, Marty's thoughts on fishing out bad casts, whether the color red is worth fishing, how steelhead use their mouths to feel, holding soft loops, and much more. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out Mia and Marty's Intro to Winter Steelhead online class over at Anchored Outdoors. That's www.anchoredoutdoors.com. I'm really excited to be sitting down with both of you today. And like I was saying before we were rolling, it's a little bit funky because I would like to kind of take you off, take each of you off into your own corner and hear your story from start to finish. But we can always sit back down on the show again. So it's not like we've got to get everything covered in this episode, but um, it is cool to have the two of you on together because (laughs) your your personalities together are just way too entertaining to not record. So anyway, I'm sitting here right now with Mia and Marty Shepard. Mia, what was your, what's your maiden name? Because some people may know of you as Mia Pringle. Yeah. Yes. Mia Pringle. Okay. So Mark, I was just going to say Marty and I got married in 2006. I'm doing the math on this. Wait a second. So Tegan was, when we were fishing together in 2007, Tegan was born. Mm -hmm. So what did you guys, did you guys do the whole marriage because you were pregnant or did you guys get pregnant right after you got married? 
We got pregnant right after we were, well, right after our honeymoon. So we went to Tulum and we went fishing for uh, tarpon and saltwater fish and snorkeling in cenotes and learning Spanish. And uh, that was our honeymoon. And, you know, after a couple of pina coladas, things happened. And uh, voila, Tegan. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, let's let's start off because I want to hear, all, all, obviously, I want to hear all about how you guys met. But I need to hear a little bit about your lives before we, before we go there. So, Marty, what's your story? How did you get into fishing? I grew up on a steelhead river. And uh, my dad fished. He was a, a bait fisherman. And so I grew up. Um, on a place where we could catch steelhead almost year round. It was the Sandy river has, and still to this day, it has steelhead that enter the system every month of the year. And um, when people would show up on our backyard pool, my dad would be so excited and he would, he would always be like, look, there's people down there fishing. Let's go join them. And so you know, it was always a celebration anytime somebody was there fishing the pool that we lived on. And, you know, that, that didn't have, um, always, um, the fairy tale like story. Like sometimes there was controversy living on a pool when, when people got, um, a little bit, uh, pretentious that it was their water. And so my dad never understood that. And even to this day when, um, I was just on the river the other day and a guy totally walked in right below us and started throwing gear right where we're fishing. And my guy looks at me and says, well, and I go, oh, I got this. He just thinks that this is a great spot. And I went down and I said, this is a great spot. <laughs> and we talk and I learned a lot from my dad growing up about, um, how to interact with others on the river as far as etiquette goes. And I remember one day fishing with you on, where were we? The, the better? The better, yeah. Yeah. And you had told me the same thing. Like, hey, if anybody low holes us, let me deal with it. And it's totally like, I, and it happened, of course, there. And, uh, and so I grew up with a really great perspective of, of fishing around others and fishing around different types of personalities. But Mostly, um, I grew up, you know, just for, with, with this joy and love of, um, of fishing for the adrenaline and excitement that it brought my family. And it also provided lots of meals for my family. <laughs> like my, my mom and dad were just, you know, regular blue collar workers. My mom was a housewife and my dad was a produce manager at a grocery store. You know, and they had a humble home and raised two kids. My sister lives in Chicago now. And, um, you know, and so that's how I got my start in fishing is I just was never not around it. So you guys lived right on the water. Yeah. I mean, we were like a block off. Gotcha. Water, so you didn't so have people trying to we, trespass through your property to get onto the river? For sure we did. Oh, yeah. you did? Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. But my dad was happy with that. He was like, oh, sweet. People coming to fish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I believe in keeping yeah, it cool. There's no reason to have drama yeah. on the river, but that takes it to the next level. Cause it's one thing. I mean, obviously I live on the river too in Smithers and so, or in on the Bulkley. And when we're fishing and you roll into the river, then we all just agree it's a great spot, but going through my property to it is not as well yeah. received. 
it wasn't like this stream of people. It was like somebody once a month. So it was exciting. Like somebody came over, you know, <laughs> I love so it. It was different than that. You know, do you think it was different back then? Do you think that it was just a more polite time where people a little bit more respectful of your space back then? No, I mean, I don't think that it was that much different. I mean, uh, I, I see a lot of me and my dad and I see like, I mean, the first controversy I ever saw was, you know, somebody showed up at the pool and it's like, Oh look, somebody's down there. Let's go show them the good spot. That's how my dad was. Wow. Grab the beers. Let's grab, (laughs) grab, grab some snacks and chips and let's go down there. And you know, when he showed up to the first time to a fly angler in the water and I remember it vividly like, Whoa, what's that guy doing? It's really cool. Like I don't even know what fly fishing is. And we go down there and the guy's like, um, what are you doing? This is my water. And my dad is like, I don't think so. So the fly fisherman was the territorial guy in all, in all the years of people. Yeah. He in. was like, Hey, I I'm in this run. You move on. And so I was like, Whoa, what's that? And my dad is like, Whoa, what's that? Does that make sense? <laughs> it it's put like kind of different. It does. Did like that's it's the perspective horrible. Did, I came did it from. put a bad taste in your mouth? Cause I know when I used to fish gear that the first confrontation I had was also with a fly fisherman or two. They thought I was a, a boy and they, I could hear them talking, you know, trash talking that I was ruining the pool and they had to go somewhere else. And it put a really bad taste in my mouth when it came to fly fishermen for definitely my, my late teens and maybe even my early twenties. What about you? Did, uh, did it put a bad taste in your mouth when it came to fly fishermen? Well, a couple things. Um, one of my mentors growing up was this guy, Brian Sylvie, and he fly fished. And so I knew it wasn't the fly fishing. It's the individual, first of all. But I think that, like, my dad definitely had some resentment towards fly fishing, and it's probably out of rebellion that that's why I do it. If that makes sense. Oh, interest. Oh, the psychology. (laughs) The plot thickens. Right. I don't know, you know. But anyway, my my parents are terribly supportive and really, you know, proud of what we do. So, um, your dad so sounds it's not out of total awesome. rebellion. Yeah. So <laughs> gotcha. Mia, what's your story? How, how did you get started fishing in general? Gosh. Uh, well, I grew up, I definitely grew up around it. So, uh, we lived in growing up, uh, in Florida and Tennessee. I was born in Tennessee and my mom's brother, Gary, was a diehard fisherman. He was, that was his life was commercial fishing in Florida, whether it was, you know, getting little seahorses or, you know, casting bait off the end of a pier. I mean, he was always fishing. He loved it. And so um, whenever we would go visit Gary, Uncle Gary, we were always around it. We would go out, grab a pole and go fishing. And uh, we also lived in Oregon. My parents moved around a lot. They were hippies. And so we went from, you know, Florida to Tennessee to Oregon. And and uh, in, in Oregon, we fished the Sandy River and of course, Gary would come and visit and we would um, take buckets down to the city, the Sandy, and we would um, fish for smelt. 
that was when the they were you know they don't really come around anymore they've gone extinct but um we would go down there with buckets and scoop them out of the river and that was something we would always do with with uncle gary and so it was always a part of me and just being on the river and the water and uh and then uh i got into snowboarding and did that for many many years really hardcore chase the snow, chase the powder from, from Tahoe. That's where I start started and worked at ski areas and rode, you know, as much as possible. And then eventually I went up to Mount hood and I would snowboard year round. So I worked at the ski camps and then I would wait tables in the bars or, or work in the rental shops. And that's where Marty and I connected and met and, and was, was, uh, up on Mount Hood snowboarding. And it actually was, was in the Rat Skeller, a really crazy fun bar at the time, but we met there. And, uh, and, uh, so I got into fly fishing. Uh, it was a thing to do when there wasn't any snow. And so, uh, you know, this Marty, and our friend Josh Lynn at the time, well, Josh is a friend and really good friend and very instrumental in my um, fly fishing career. And uh, so uh, Josh and Marty, they were going to go fishing and fly fishing and asked me to come along. And it was totally brand new. I'd never done it before. And so I... You know, I was bored. There wasn't any snow. And I went, sure, I'll go down to the Deschutes River and check it out. And that was my start with, with fly fishing was on the Deschutes River. And it was May. It was the salmon fly hatch. And Marty and Josh, uh, they, you know, they dragged me down to the river and said, let's, let's uh, do this. Give it a try. And here you are. Now, tell me about this commercial thing, because didn't you do some commercial fishing as well? Yeah. So I also commercial fished in Alaska, uh, again, during my snowboarding years. So uh, after, so I snowboarded from Tahoe, I went to Mount Hood. And then from Mount Hood, I went up to a place called Stevens Pass in Washington. And Steve and, and Stevens, amazing mountain, uh, incredible terrain. And I lived in this little town called Skykomish. And well, there happened to be a lot of commercial fishermen that lived up there. They were crab fishermen. And so I got to know a couple of these guys. And, uh, this one year, one of the guys said, Hey, you know, we're looking for a cook on a boat. And at that time, I just needed a change. I went, I need to do something different besides, you know, snowboarding and, and, uh, you know, waiting tables. And I went, heck yeah, I'll go to Alaska and work on a crab boat. And that was in, I think, 90, I want to say 97, I'd, sometime right around that era, that era. And so 97, I went up there, I went, flew into Dutch Harbor. And, um, that was a life changing event. So I, I hopped on board a 125 foot boat and my captain was Norwegian, Al. Uh, he was an incredible guy. And I worked on this boat with these burly crab fishermen and, 
Uh, so I, of course I was cooking for them, but I would also go out on deck and I would chop bait and stuff these bait sacks. And, uh, I would, we also used cod as bait. So, you know, we'd have this big tote of cod and I would like, you know, jump in this, in this coat is just all bloody and guts everywhere. And I would have my knife and be cutting, you know, cutting, slicing the cod so that I could hang it on the bait sack. And anyway, it was, um, it was quite an experience. So I did that for two and a half months and made a lot of money. And then, uh, I took my money and I, I actually went to my next stop was Valdez to go snowboarding and help heli skiing. So, um, there for a couple of years, I did, yeah, I crab fished and for, I don't know, about four years off and on. And then also worked on a saner, worked on, uh, uh, let's see, a saner, worked on, uh, oh, gill netted out of Bristol Bay. That was really fun. So worked on boats for a while, ended up working on Alaskan State Ferry and, uh, worked on a tug for Crowley Marine, went to China, took a boat from Alaska or Seattle all the way to a place called Dalian, China. And well, we had to go pick the boat up in Russia off of uh, what it was called, uh, Sockling, I think. Yeah, Sockling. So went there to Russia and that was really an interesting experience because our, it was right around Christmas, but they wouldn't let us leave. The Russians wouldn't let us leave the dock. And this guy would always show up to our boat, like pull up in a BMW and he'd have this leather jacket on and he'd come on board and he's, you know, would go and talk to the captain and, and he always wanted more paper stamps. And then he was there. He always wanted something more, but they wouldn't let us leave. And so we actually got stuck there on this dock for like a month and a half like it was really bizarre and then they finally would let us go and then then we took the boat to china and to another port anyway so lots of lots of uh time on the water i've and a lot of fishing a lot of you know i've always had a, i feel like a deep connection really rooted uh on the water whether that's the ocean or the rivers i just i love it Marty, what were you thinking when you met Mia? <laughs> um, <laughs> that she's smoking hot <laughs> and kicking ass at pool. She was playing a game of pool. She had this, you know, white wife beater shirt on and was uh, running the table. And I'm like, who is this chick? <laughs> And uh, I don't know that she knew my name for another, I don't know, 10 years. But, um, you know, the only reason she knows that we met at the Rat Skillard is because I told her that. Um, <laughs> remember that night we met there? <laughs> She's like, I guess. But, um, you know, um, she was striking. And um, and then when I got to know her, she was amazing. And, and so I pursued... I pursued that troublemaker for a long time. Um, you know, we were really close, good friends for 10 years, at least before there was romance. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Maybe more than 10. I'm not so sure like how long it was, 10. but it seemed like a freaking eternity to me. Um, 
because um you were madly I'm sure in love. you had to know <laughs> yeah at first sight like are you kidding walking into that rat skeller and seeing her play pool you know i mean in 2001 i went to alaska and she was living up there and it had to be when i was 21 when we were at the rat skeller so that would have been i don't know what year uh, but I was born in 71, so that ages me. And um, Mia was living in Alaska, and I went up there to fish with some friends, let her know I was coming. She picked us up at the airport, which was awesome. Um, I don't know what she was driving, a 1970s uh, you know, Ford pickup. It was a black Ford, yeah, Ford pickup. It was my boyfriend's <laughs> <laughs> and what were super nice guy? Yeah, you know, we weren't dating. I mean, it was long no. before us, and um, and uh, you know, but me and I were really good friends for a long, long time, and then um, and then finally she caved in to me. I guess I think it was the spay casting that did it. Yeah, <laughs> well, that that'll do it. I mean, it's like poetry. So, so Marty, mm-hmm. you were obviously way into your fishing career at that time. I'm assuming. When did you start guiding? That year in 2001. So, and literally that year was the year she, Mia had gone out to fish with us, um, but she didn't stay. She had other stuff going on. She said, I can go out there and hang out. We had taken a, uh, a friend's charter boat. He did surf guiding in Alaska, which is crazy. It's a guy named Liska and, um, Liska, was that his name? Mm-hmm. Jay Liska. Yeah. And, uh, he, he took us out to some crazy island in Prince William Sound and then dropped us off there for a week. And he said, if a storm comes, I might not be able to come get you guys because it was on the Gulf of Alaska. But um, he wanted to make sure there was fish around and before he left us for a week on this little island with bears on it. And, uh, and Mia went out there with us. And so we pulled out two-handed rods and started throwing – polywogs for silvers and they were in it was crazy good like we were we had caught five in like 20 minutes on surface flies and we were casting two-handers back then and mia was like i don't know what you guys are doing but it's pretty sexy you know and and so she was interested in fishing and she was fishing too there and uh but she couldn't stay she went back and then as soon as we got back into port um, a little thing happened called uh, 9-11. It was September 11th, day after Mia's birthday, and uh, it was 2001, and we were stuck in Alaska. And so, you know, we stayed at Mia's place and did a bunch of fishing on the Kenai. And the day that I finally was able to get back home, um, my boss had called and asked if I wanted to do some guiding for a guy in Northeast Oregon on the Grand Ronde River. And that was the start of my guiding was right then and there. I'd fished for years and years and years. In fact, I'd cursed the idea of ever becoming a guide. I, 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 I kind of reasoned it to like, wow, how great would it be if you could be like a snowboarding guide and you have to walk down the hill and they get to shred like, why would I ever want to like watch people fish like or help them fish when I can't like, I don't get that. But the truth of the matter is, is 
it was extremely gratifying and terribly fun to take that next challenge of somebody that, you know, was trying to acquire the skills that I had already acquired and helping them along the way. And, and, uh, when, you know, I guided a guy into my first deal, I remember it like crazy vividly. It was a place called Mud Creek just above Troy on the Grand Ronde River. It was the first guy guided a steelhead into. And, like, it felt better than me catching my last 20 steelhead. It felt better than, like, what I remember catching my first steelhead. Like, like the joy it gave me to see somebody have success through some of my tutelage was gratifying. And so um, I just knew right then, like, after that, I really wanted to change my career which at the time was, uh, I went from a ski bum to a fishing bum. I'd worked at a ski area for 12 years. Was that the boss? Because who's, who's this boss asking you to guide? That was a a ski boss asking you to guide fishing. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, so I worked for a guy at the ski area named Steve Cruz and Steve, uh, Steve said that one of the outfitter buddies of his needed a hand and, uh, asked if I wanted to do it. And I said, I did. And he said, okay, you got to get here now. And I'm like, I'm in Alaska. It's stuck here. Like no one can fly anywhere. And so as soon as we could get out of there, we, we went down there and then that was my first year of guiding. And then my second year of guiding somehow or another, Mia was single and said, I'm coming down to Oregon to visit. And I said, well, I'm guiding out in Northeast Oregon on the John Day river. Come stay. And then she came out and that's when she caught her first steelhead. Aha. What about your entrance into guiding Mia? Because for people who are just, you know, meeting both of you now via this episode, Mia and Marty are both renowned fishing guides. And I mean, we'll get into it later. Mia is even a a world champion spaycaster. So we'll build up to all of that. But how did you get started guiding Mia? So that was something guiding is something I never even thought about doing as a career, like no chance at all. Um, I was actually, um, I think going to school and wanting to be a biologist, um, taking classes in uh, hydrology and um, just, yeah, I just wanted to learn more about water. And I was working at the forest service and doing um, seasonal work uh, in fisheries, actually like uh, pit tagging fish and, doing snorkeling surveys and spawning surveys on streams. Um, but uh, yeah, so Marty and I started dating and that was in again, like 2001 and in, I was, or wait a second, 2002. <laughs> so I was, I was still living in Alaska and, uh, and it, so I came down to visit and then it was shortly after that, that, um, you know, Marty, and I thought, well, why don't we start, you know, dating for real? And um, 2003, uh, Marty got the opportunity to purchase Little Creek Outfitters. And that's who, so he had, he was working for Little Creek Outfitters. And John Eklund, who owned Little Creek, John said, I'm going to sell the company and I'm going to move to Argentina. And so um, he asked Marty to buy it. And so Marty and I talked about it and said, well, you know, should we buy this company? And I mean, it's an opportunity and heck, let's do it. We'll, you know, own the company for 10 years and then we'll turn around and sell it. So we thought we'd sell Little Creek in 10 years. And, uh, and, 
And I had never guided before that, but here we buy this company and like, okay, well, I guess, you know, I got to like go take people bass fishing. Like I need to do this, like, you know, or we hire somebody. So that's really how I got going was we bought the company and then I just, just, I had to start guiding. And, um, so it was something to do during the summer besides wait tables and, and, uh, and that was it. And I was always, I was still the, those beginning years. I mean, for me, it was just another job. It was like waiting tables or, you know, I wasn't, I still, I, I, my passion still at the time was snowboarding. Like I really loved like that was what I lived for. And fishing was just secondary still. I was kind of like, ah, that's fine. I'll take people fishing. But uh, I had never, you know, I, I didn't pursue it. And then uh, when Tegan, uh, so that was, I was guiding bass. I'd guide the summers and, and then, you know, do all the, our bookkeeping for Little Creek and, you know, whatever, whatever else. And then Tegan was born in 2007. And that was really, I don't know why, but that was when everything, you know, everything changes, you know, being a mom, like things just change. And, and I thought, okay, I want to spend more time with my daughter. And this seems like a perfect thing to do. Like we have this business and we have, you know, this, this, this business that could be more successful that I could be more involved in, more engaged in. And, you know, I need to do this. Like, heck, I need to like, you know, really dive into this more and get better at, you know, the skills and, you know, the skills of fishing and spay casting and catching and taking people steelhead fishing. Like I had not guided anyone for steelhead before that, you know, cause I, I was always, I remember asked, telling Marty like, Oh, I can't, can't do this. I don't know how to take someone's steelhead fishing. Like, and I'm also, you know, too emotionally attached to catching steelhead. And that was, you know, the defining moment. And what Marty said is, well, you can't be emotionally attached to catching steelhead um, if you want to guide somebody, you know, steelhead fishing. And and that was, you know, when I got to that point, I felt like I graduated, like, okay, I can take someone steelhead fishing now. And I, you know, just do it to bring somebody on the river to enjoy the, the entire experience and not worry about just getting them a fish and having that pressure of like, okay, I have to, you know, it's just giving somebody an experience that includes something more than just the catching. Is that what you meant by emotionally attached, the pressure to actually catch one? Yeah. Yeah. So the pressure to actually catch fish and, and I've, you know, I've been on the river now with other, you know, lots of people and, and I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to people about their experiences, you know, with other guides and, and I've seen it too, guides that have worked for us that, you know, they just get frustrated and, and if they're not catching fish, then, you know, they feel like that's the only purpose. And, and it isn't, that's not the sole purpose to, you know, steelhead fishing. And, and so, yeah, just, um, giving people a grander experience and talking about the history of the area and the community and the, the natural wonder of the place and the rivers and, you know, the whole experience of 
of being a steelheader and what that's like. That's, you know, that's important. Yeah, no, I love it. And you know what? It's so funny because I know little bits and pieces about each of you. I know Mia, you, you took some time to go work conservation, right? Weren't you working at one of the foundations somewhere? Yeah, I worked for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership for almost seven years and uh, working on just public land issues. And yeah. And and now it makes sense looking at what you went to school for and all the little bits and pieces are all kind of coming together, which is really cool. What was the biggest shock to both of your systems uh, those first few years of owning an outfitting company? Oh, Oh, my God. Can I go, Mia? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I'm going to backtrack a little bit to where Mia was talking about buying the business. You know, the outfitter had come to me and asked me if I wanted to buy it. And I was, there was just like, no way. I mean, we didn't have any money. And two, I am not an organized person. Like I do really good going on the river because I can leave everything, all my responsibilities behind. And it was the same with snowboarding and the same with fishing for steelhead. It's just like put my head into the sand and forget about all my responsibilities. I'm super good at that. Nothing that I've accomplished in my life that's significant happens without Mia and, and her organization and her diligence and her character, like everything that I have success at is can be pretty much contributing factor is her you know like she's the best so with that said when the outfitter came to us to buy the business i was terrified to have that type of opportunity and had no idea where we could find seed money or funding for that and you know i said i'm not doing anything like this without you mia And she was like, well, let's look at the books. And we looked at the books and we was like, this could work for us. Like we could make this happen. And one of the things about buying a business is you have to, in order to guide some of the rivers that we guide on, you can't just move to Oregon and start guiding on the Deschutes River or the Grand Ronde River or the John Day River. They're all managed by federal agencies that require a special recreation permit. And these SRPs um, are limited and there's only so many guides they allow. And so, you know, the good news is there's not overrun with guides and tons of, of outfitters trying to make a dollar off of the resource. It's pretty well limited to a certain level. And it really, you know, there's a carrying capacity for that and it doesn't get much bigger, but we had to, if we ever wanted to be, an outfitter on these rivers by somebody's business to get those SRPs transferred to us. And so that's what we, we decided to try to entertain that thought. And then we had to find money to buy the business. And, you know, we went back to our roots. We went back to the ski area. We went back to my boss, Steve, and asked his advice. And he said, write a business plan. And we did. We wrote a business plan and we figured out how well the company was doing because we were able to look at the books and we were able to think about how we would expand the business, especially if Mia started guiding and, and we got into this and she was comfortable doing the guiding for bass. It's so easy. And so, I mean, they just bite. Um, and it took her a couple of years to get into the steelhead game, 
And that really did happen because of Tegan, I think. Like, having a baby, her and I sat down and decided that one of us should be home with our child, you know? Like, like why have a baby and then, like, the both of us go off to work? And that's hard. And I realized that, like, people have to do that in this day and age. But we were willing to make the sacrifice of only one of us working full time at a time. And Mia does not stay home and do nothing well. Like she is like, I need to be out doing something. So she started steelheading every day with Tegan on her back. And she started like, she would just be fishing constantly. And I was just like, Oh my God, you get to fish all the time. That's awesome. And she, and then she was like, Hey, you know, there's a competition for this. Like, what do you mean? Like, like distance casting, you can, you can go to San Francisco and compete against the best in the world. And she's like, I want to do that. I've got the time to train for this. Like, I don't have anything else going on right now. And so she started like casting bigger rods, longer lines and preparing to go to this event in San Francisco. And she went down and she competed in San Francisco in April of, I forget what year was the first year she did it, but she took fourth place and she was so like, like stoked on it. Like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. There's awesome people here. There's awesome camaraderie. This is like so cool. I want to like make it a goal to go back and get one of the top three spots. You know, she was like this close to, podium like hit the podium that first year and so she had this ton of drive to get better at spay casting well the unintended consequences of getting better at spay casting is you become a much better angler and so she started catching steelhead at a higher rate she started catching fish behind me she started catching steelhead wherever she'd go she'd go on road trips to fish for steelhead and that really changed like her emotional attachment to fishing. And she started planning our fishing trip. She started planning that trip where we met you on the Skagit. She plans these trips to go to different destinations. She planned the trip for our honeymoon to go to the Yucatan Peninsula. And I mean, every, everything we've done, it's her organization and drive. And now she had that drive for fishing. And that was amazing to see her take that leap and step to become an amazing angler and an amazing mom. And, and, uh, so I'm super proud of Mia. Um, like I said, I'm, t- I'm, I'm nothing without her. So thanks, Mia. Love you. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> you guys are so awesome. Oh my goodness. I That's love it. Very sweet. Mia, uh, Mia, you are a strong, badass woman, as you know. You know. Talk to me about Spayorama. What was it like the first year? Was it terrifying? <laughs> the first year of Spayorama, um, was it terrifying? No, because I had, I had competed in snowboarding a lot. And so I already had that competitive drive. But I went down there. I mean, the first the first year, it was just like, oh, heck, I'm just – going to do this. I'm going to learn how to get better at casting. And, um, Mar- a guy named Marius Wobelstein is, um, he Wobelowski. lived in Portland at the time. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you. And, um, and, and he said, Oh, he, Oh, you know, 
let's meet on the Sandy and I'll teach you about spade casting. And I'll let you borrow a line. And then we also, that, 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 that one day, um, Bryant's high school and Whitney Gould came down. And so we all were casting on the beach together and I was like, okay, this is cool. But that was the first time that I realized how bad of a caster I was too. Like I had, like, I was trying to cast this, you know, 50 foot line and, you know, with a 15 foot rod. And I went, oh my God, like, I have no clue what I'm doing. Like I couldn't make it turn over. And I went, I'm a really bad caster. Like this is terrible. And I thought that I was a decent caster. And, um, and, and I went, okay, well, you know, I started practicing more and then I went, I'm going to go down this competition. And, but my drive was, you know, when I got fourth place, I went, Oh my God, I can, I want to do so much better than that. But I also want to get better at casting as, cause I was, didn't realize how crappy I was. So it became that pursuit of like, just wanting to master something, wanting to get better. I knew that it would help me in the long run with the business. And plus I also just wanted to go back there and win. And, and so the second year, um, Marty was my coach and he, he coached me and, you know, would just have me do these casting drills. And then, and I'm like, what are you having me do? Like, just dump my line. Like, what does this all mean? Well, you know, and he would just have me do this over and over and over in a pond. And, uh, and it worked. I went back there the second year and I won and, uh, which was really exciting. So, um, yeah, it was, it was fun. Um, it was, it was a little bit intimidating for sure that first year going down there. Cause I didn't know what to expect. And I'm watching all these, you know, people make long cast and the guys and, you know, just, uh, everyone is just, they were such good casters. And, but there was also the camaraderie of, you know, hanging out at this historical club in San Francisco and sitting around with these old timers drinking whiskey and watching people cast and talking to people and meeting people from Norway and Ireland and Russia and Japan. And so it's really, it's, it's a blast. Really super fun. Are you still competing? Cause you've competed how many no. times now? I want to say maybe six times, but I have not, I, I didn't, um, I hung it up about four years ago and and yeah, I got to a point cause yeah, I just said, I don't want to do this anymore because it was, it, it is, it's a lot of time. Uh, there's a big commitment to practicing and keeping it up. And I just got to a point where I'm like, okay, well, I have a family. I have a daughter. I have a business to run. I don't have the time for this anymore. And, um, so I did for a couple of years. I gave it up and, the year before COVID, so that was COVID was started in 2020. Was that when it was? So I think it was, yeah, 2019. I did go down there just randomly, did not practice. And I went, oh, I just want to see if I can cast a long rod again. And literally in like a three day time period, like Spayorama was happening and I went, I'm going to buy a ticket and I'm going to go down there and I just want to go see people that I haven't seen. And I want to just see if I can cast far and like literally changed my line, hadn't practiced 
and went down there and uh, I got second place and yeah. So, but I'm not going to do it anymore. And I, I am officially like, I'm, I'm done. It's a huge <laughs> I, time commitment, isn't it? I think if there was money involved, like that's the thing. Like if it was like a golf turn, you know, golfers make thousands of dollars and here, you know, we're all these people going down there are putting a tremendous amount of time into this sport and energy and this huge commitment. And it's for bragging rights. And I just, I'm at the point where that's, I don't need to do that anymore. I I want it. If it was more, if I knew that there was like a $5,000, $10,000 purse, that would change my mind. And I would go down there. Okay. Yeah, I, I wonder if they'll ever do that. I wonder if they'll ever do that. Because I, I know you guys are busy as hell. Bruce, I'm yeah. I'm staring at you both now, and you're both in this beautiful house that you're in the process of building. So where is this place that I'm looking at behind you? Maupin, Oregon. So yeah, uh we just bought 13 acres a year ago, and in literally a year we have built a house. And uh, a lot of the work we've done ourselves um, because we ran out of money and it's a beautiful, you know, 1200 square foot house um, custom. We have fur ceilings. Marty is a incredible, very talented um, builder and um, he just doesn't build houses and he can build, he builds bamboo rods that are in, that are amazing. And that's, that's a whole seg- another segment that you should someday talk to him about. Cause he is a very, very talented, um, rod builder, but anything he puts his mind to. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's a secret. It, 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 it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> Do you sell them Marty? I don't. I tell my clients if they're 60 years or older, I have a 20 year waiting list with a full deposit due now. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. You know what? I, I, uh, I have only built, I've made five. They've all been 12 foot two handed rods. They've all been spliced ferals. And I've gained a tremendous amount of inspiration from Bob Clay from James Reed, from Mark Schamberg. And um, it's just something I wanted to do secretly, like is my thing that I, just, I, I, I don't promote it or social media or do anything. It's just something that's mine that I do my spare time. And, uh, and so that's usually late night out in the shop for the last year. We haven't had a shop. And so right now outside there's a, 30 by 56 slab poured and uh, hopefully one day we can get back to a point where we can uh, put a metal building on it and I'll have a bamboo rod little corner in that shop. So my ultimate goal is to um, perfect my craft over the next 15 years and then I'll be 65 and I will retire and then I will have something to do in my retirement and, uh, I'm not kidding. There's a 15 year waiting list because that's not, that's when I plan on actually committing myself 100% to them. Yeah. Right. Hey, look, it's actually a pretty good plan to be honest. I think that's a pretty good strategy. Not the, not the life insurance policy of get in now, but the, uh, the retiring from guiding 
and having a backup yeah. plan because, you know, that kind of segues me naturally into the next sort of bit that I want to talk about just for guides listening, because you know, there are a lot of guides listening right now who look up to you both and rightfully so. And, um, and I want to talk game plans. So that was one of my questions for you is yeah. if you have a game plan, um, and it sounds like you do Mia, what's your game plan at the end of the day? Gosh, my game plan. <laughs> You know, uh, I've, I've, I talked to Marty about also helping with the rods a little bit. Um, I definitely, I'm, I'm not savvy when it comes to the measurements or, or, you know, the, uh, planing. Um, but I would like to do maybe some of the finishing work with just the cork or the, you know, wrapping the guides and that, you know, just that intricate work. Um, but, you know, I start thinking about things like I love gardening. I love just the natural world around me. And um, I am getting into uh, beekeeping. So I know that you're you're into that. So I am right now enrolled in this Oregon Master Beekeepers program. And I'm learning about bees. And I I mean, I don't know if I can, I mean, you're not, I'm not going to make a huge amount of money and I'm at this point not even thinking really about that, but just to get that experience and maybe down the road I can, you know, sell product or honey, you know, just supplementing income. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's really what I'm thinking. I also sometimes think and dream about having a lodge. I, love entertaining people. It's really fun. And the thought of, you know, moving somewhere warm, a warm water destination and running a lodge, I think would be really fun to do someday. So that's something I sometimes think about. But for now, I know we're going to be running Little Creek at least for another 10, 15 years. Um, but we're also segueing into um, hunting. So instead of um, just doing bass trips, so so right now we do trout and smallmouth bass and steelhead. And we stay busy, you know, 11 months out of the year doing this. And but, you know, there's a lot of river lovers out there and there's a lot of hunters. And we've been we've been hunters um, for the last 10 years, big game hunters, bird, uh, bird hunting. I've, I've been doing for 20 years. I love bird hunting and chucker hunting and we are surrounded by public land. And, um, so it's, it's an opportunity to take people bird hunting and take people, big sheep, you know, big game hunting for sheep, um, for deer. And so that's something that we are wanting to expand upon and segue into and do that for the next, you know, 15 years, who heck, maybe 20, you know, it's climbing these hills keeps you in really good shape. And if I can, I mean, it is something I want to do when I'm 70. So. Well, one of the things I've noticed with uh, one of the things that is evident when you look at guides as they, get into the retirement years that the guides that, you know, I have looked up to is, you know, how do you retire from guiding? It seems like, you know, every year there's just, you barely make it. So back to um, gaining inspiration was I really wanted to find a pathway 
to proper retirement like a normal civilized human being. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, Mia did build up a 401k with the nonprofit she worked at. And that, that got like us looking at my portfolio going, what am I doing as a guide? I'm doing nothing. I'm not putting the money away. I'm not doing anything. And Mia forever is like, we need to go see a financial person and start figuring out a way. And so I don't know how long ago it's been now, but for the last eight or nine years, we've met with a financial person, put money into IRAs, put money into, you know, diversified portfolios. And we've made a plan. Like if we're going to retire and every year we meet up and we're, we're on path to making it happen. And somehow, some way we've been able to, we weren't too late to the game to put money away, to prepare for a proper retirement where, where we can actually, you know, go into our senior years in 15, 20 years from now um, with some savings, with some investments that we've made. And it, it's not just the um, diversified portfolio of putting money into stocks and bonds that we've um, did. Part of that includes the business we've built and passing that on to the next generation like the old guy did for us, right? And, you know, there's some small real estate investments that we've made, you know, that we've turned those around, which have come into the fruition of this home that we're building now. And, you know, this it's a lifelong goal to build a house or be a homeowner. And, um, you know, I'm proud that we've been able to build a house and I probably, I hope that it's the last one we build and uh, because it's a great place and I'm really proud that we've been able to make it work for as long as we have. And, but none of it feels terribly successful unless we were able to retire, you know, at a reasonable age because um, a lot of my guide friends are like, well, I just retire when I die. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's, that seems like a, a sketchy, um, uncertain route to go down. Well, I just wanted to add to this and just, um, you know, maybe thinking about giving future guides or people that are guiding now, like newer guides, some tips, Um, you know, because it's, you know, I mean, we're 20 years into this and definitely starting out our earlier years. I I mean, I was like, I don't know how we're going to make this. We would have like at the end of the year, 5,000 bucks in our account. I'm like, we're not making any money at this. Like, you know, so I would have to go wait tables and, you know, so supplementing things. And so it's really hard to do you know, to make it work year round. So, you know, and a couple of things we've done is by, you know, expanding across multiple rivers. So not putting all your eggs into one basket, you know, also looking at diversifying and, you know, and not just, you know, I know that fishing and that's what people maybe, you know, that's their end goal is like, I just want to be a fishing guide. Well, you know, think about 
the other things that people enjoy doing on the river. So maybe um, work for a rafting company, get experience doing that. Um, we also, I mean, diversify. So we haven't just added hunting to our, you know, what we offer people, but we, I do stand up paddleboard yoga trips and we do, you know, stand up paddleboard. We have, you know, eight paddleboards. So if people want to do that. I mean, we're at least offering another service. And, and so I think that's really good expanding, you know, the demographic of people that you take fishing, whether that's women or, you know, uh, so I think that there's, you know, there's, there's so much opportunity out there around rivers and, you know, it's just looking at everything and not just like focusing in on one thing. Coming up, we dive into the nitty gritty about fishing for winter steelhead. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out Mia and Marty's Intro to Winter Steelhead online class over at Anchored Outdoors. That's www.anchoredoutdoors.com. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk a little bit about fishing, if you guys don't mind. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed watching both of you in the class that you guys did for Anchored. Thank you very much for doing such a great job. But it's funny because it, it's an introduction to winter steelheading class. And I expected to be like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. But you said a couple of things, Marty, that actually kind of threw me for a loop and I wanted to pick through them. So bad casts. I am totally guilty of being like, oh, bad casts, catch fish, fish it out. And your philosophy on this was very surprising and and interesting. Can you please explain to the listener what your philosophy is on fishing out bad casts? So by far the best anglers I know are the ones that have the most yield. Like they catch steelhead. And we all know that there's certain guys out there, that those guys catch fish, you know, or girls like they are. So I'll go back to, to when Mia started catching more steelhead is when her casting got way better. Think about that. Why didn't she catch them when she was terrible at casting? <laughs> because bad casts don't catch fish. Bad casts scare fish. Uh, when I am guiding somebody, and I, and I show them when your cast turns over and it lands tight and it lands at the proper angle, I literally hold out my hand, I stick out my index finger, and I curl it towards me over and over again. Like, here you go. Come and get it. That's what that does. 
And then a bad cast, when it comes out, it unfolds, it lands in a huge pile of spaghetti. And I take my arm and I show my clients when, I, when I'm fishing. I didn't do this for your video, but I hope you can picture it through the podcast. And I take my hand and I, I make a fist and I take the middle finger and I put it up and I swing it through. That's what a bad cast is. It's like flipping off the fish. It literally, it feels like it tells the fish to get the hell out of the run. Like it just sweeps through at unpredictable speeds. It sweeps through at, you know, crazy depths. It's just not, but it's not the same as the cast before. And if they're all different, you, you don't have any predictability and anything in nature that eats anything does it with predictability. So if I can make my fly predictable as can be, then I feel like it pumps up the fish. Like it literally, like the steelhead that is laying like down behind a rock that's 50 yards downstream. When I get 20 feet from it, it sees it. And it swings at 2.2 miles an hour. It's a red fly. It's a black fly or whatever it sees. And the next cast gets two feet closer. The next cast two feet closer. And all of a sudden, well before it's to its lie, it knows where it's going to land. And it knows how fast it's going to swing. And it's calculating on this little pea brain, like, there's going to be this black fly landing on three, two, one. There it is. Like, clockwork. And when those steelhead, I feel like, can predict where your fly is going to land, how fast it's going to swing, what color it is. Like all of these things add up to success because I see it day in and day out with people that catch fish and the people that catch the most fish in my boat are the most consistent casters. That is so interesting. So you're saying as the angler takes there's two steps down between casts, the fish is seeing the fly coming closer and closer. Would it not get and this is just me playing devil's advocate, but would the sure. fish not get bored and therefore be more excited if it wasn't consistent? Or do you think that like all animals that steelhead are really just the same and they like to pattern things and have things be consistent and predictable? I can even only if only for a short you, period of time. <laughs> yeah. I can only, I can, I can only tell you that um, the people that make a bad cast every five casts, that I guide catch fewer fish than the person that makes 10 out of 10. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when the fish does take on a bad cast, it does happen, but you're just mm -hmm. saying not as often. Absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah, it does happen. I have seen casts where I'm, I've seen anglers where I'm like, that person will never catch a steelhead. Oh my God, he's got one. Yeah. <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, 10 seconds later like literally like that cast will never i should have never opened my mouth because yeah. i already got one there there's two there's two um limiting factors that are terribly important to steelheading one is luck the other is skill combine the two and you get what you get if you can get lucky and catch a steelhead anywhere in the worst run that you can think of if you fish it every day you'll finally catch one there eventually you said something else when I was quote unquote guiding you. I think that's hilarious because obviously nobody guides Marty Shepard for steelhead. But when you were with me in BC, mm -hmm. I had these, it was a long time ago, but I had these little metal tubes and you had all these reasons as to why metal tubes are inferior to plastic tubing. And your reasoning at the time 
mm-hmm. which I presume is still I the know, same, was amazing. Yeah. Can you explain? Because I, I never fished a metal tube again after that. Oh, my gosh. Nope, never did. So please tell me that you haven't changed your stance on that. Well, it's been a long time. Tell me if I am uh, still on the same page. So Steelhead, in my opinion, put things in their mouth all the time and spit them out. They don't necessarily have to eat. They're curious. Their mouth is like their hands. So if a twig goes down the river... They will put it in their mouth and spit it out. A piece of moss, lichen, a fly, a, a natural, you know, a baby lamprey, a, a shrimp, a squid. They will put these things in their mouth. If they like the feel of the thing they put in their mouth, they will keep it in their mouth. Meaning if it's squishy, if it tastes good, if there's, you know, if it has a feel that's like squeaky and nice, they will keep it in their mouth. If it's a stick, they'll spit it. If it's a metal tube, it's hard. They feel that hardness. They don't like it. They spit it. So they get rid of it really quick. So when you're fishing, you feel this tug and then there's nothing. It's because they grabbed it and they didn't like it. They didn't like it and they spit it. They're really good. Like they, before you even can set the hook, they've spit it. And that's why setting the hook doesn't work, I think. So, um, I mean, there's got to be something to not setting the hook because setting it doesn't work very well, especially on a tight line swing. So why do you, th- why do you think that is? Um, cause obviously the, mm-hmm. is it just cause it's the current and the angle in, with, in which the fish is taking? <sighs> All I know is they must clamp down and open. Because setting doesn't work. And when you set, it pulls the fly straight out. I mean, every once in a while it works, but not really that well. Like, you see so much, especially guiding, especially guiding new steelheaders that are used to being trout anglers. And, you know, they get a grab and they set the hook instantly. It just never comes tight. They never. It's never like, had a bite, set the hook as hard as I could, and got it. It's like, oh, I shouldn't have set, huh? Yeah, that's right. You shouldn't have set. Because we know that not setting works really well. So if you give them time to keep it in their mouth and chomp a second and third time, and you'll feel it. It'll be bump, 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 or pull, 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 pull. Almost like something just like touching it like really quick. That's a, that's their opening their mouth and closing it. And so you have to wait for them to turn on it because when you pull it straight out and their mouth's open, it doesn't come, it doesn't come tight to them. So there's something to it. I'm not exactly sure 100%. As many as we've caught and tortured, they've never talked. <laughs> what are your thoughts on holding a soft loop? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate of it. I do it. And um, for me, it works some of the time. Just like everybody else's technique that works the best for them, nothing works 100% of the time. But for me, I I like to think that holding that soft loop allows some buffer to them chewing on the fly. Meaning, if I feel them pull it, I let that go. It allows them to chew on it. It allows some dampening to the fly when they grab it. So just like I don't like a tight or a hard tube, for the same exact reason, I don't like a hard, tight line. Can you explain soft loop to people listening right now? 
maybe. <laughs> I'll try. Um, I like to tell my guests that fish with me. When I hold a loop, I like it to be as long as the steelhead is. That allows them to turn completely around and come tight once they've turned completely around. So a 30-inch steelhead is probably um, a nice steelhead on average for most of the rivers we fish. So that means 15 inches of loop, meaning 15 inches hanging down, 15 inches back up to the reel. And I hold it um, with my index finger on my top hand of the grip. And so that loop goes from my index finger down 15 inches, back up another 15 inches, and onto the reel, which has a semi-tight drag, meaning it won't break my leader but it takes some effort to pull it out, meaning when it comes tight, it's going to bury the hook in a fish. So I like to hold that loop loose enough that if a leaf hit my fly, it would pull it out. I like it. This is great. I've got more fishing questions, but while we're on loops, Mia, I've got a question for you. When you're casting, because you do cast so far or you can cast so far, how do you hold your loops when you're shooting line? When I'm shooting line. So um, the, it, some of this also depends on the speed of the water. So when you have more current below you, and if you have a lot of loops out, then that current is going to pull those loops down river. And, and then that creates some, you know, tension on the line that makes it harder to, um, to uh, roll out as as the cast is rolling out. But um, so I also fish with um, my running line is Veravos. And so it's 30 pounds. So it's very fine and thin. And I like that because it, it glides um, outside of the guides uh, really smooth. And so you don't have any, you don't have a friction there. Um, And so uh, when I have a lot of line out, I will pull the line, uh, the running line, um, two strips. So probably about, you know, four feet and then I'll hold it with my index finger. Um, and then I'll pull in another four feet of running line and then hold that in my middle finger. So I'm staggering, I guess the, the loops over my finger, if that makes sense. But then I take, um, so let's say I'm going to shoot, you know, 50 feet of running line. Um, once that running line comes into, uh, the head, so the head is right at the tip of the rod, then I'm going to take my running line and I'm going to wrap it around the back of the reel and then hold it so then I'm holding uh so let's say if I'm making a right-handed cast so then I'm holding oh my gosh <laughs> I'm trying to explain it's hard about line but yeah but the, it but is. just the, before you continue so your first loop that you've pulled in is shorter than your second loop so I like to go my my first loop you know, I, sometimes I change my pattern, but it is shorter. Let's see. One, two, three. So yes. So I go with a shorter loop and then it goes longer, but sometimes I also just, they're all the same. I I mean, I, I honestly, it's, 
it changed for me. It's there. There's no one pattern that I stick with, and um, and it works. River currents um, change. So it, it also currents, yeah. the currents change, and so I think it just depends on you know how much drag or or how much the current is pulling my running line. Do so, they tangle though? What What's the reason for the tangle? If you have even loops, are they more prone to tangling? Uh, that's a good question. And I think that when they're, the running line is uh, older and you get, uh, so one of the things that creates tangle is you have an old running line and you get memory in that running line and it creates knots and that creates tangles. So as it's pulling out, um, also I think, so when the, the loops are all the same size and if you hang them over the same finger, then they tangle. So I've noticed that. That's why I will, um, you know, have them go from my index. So first loop over my index finger and then a loop over my middle finger. So I try that. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually incredibly helpful. Thank you. I have a couple of fish specific questions that I'm asking, not just for the audience, but for myself, because I'm genuinely curious and I don't have this opportunity to ask you guys this very often. So this is definitely an unoriginal question, but I can't think of better people to ask. And that's about the color of your fly in relation to the water and the conditions. Yeah. You want me to start, Marty? Sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, so gosh, yesterday I was out fishing and the rivers at the Sandy rivers at 2,200, it's gin clear. So super clear. And I mean, you can see every rock on the bottom and, uh, the water's really beautiful, this clean aqua blue color. And it was a little bit overcast. Well, it was sunny at first. And then it became overcast and we started out with red, uh, red on that river on the Sandy works really well. And even under clear conditions. And so, um, but we were fishing a little bit smaller, even though it's winter steelhead fishing, usually people think, Oh, I have to fish a big, big fly because it's, you know, it's winter steelhead fishing. Well, I think when it's clearer and they can see, you know, this, I think a fish could see 15, 20 feet ahead of them. It was so clear. And so um, we were just fishing uh, a medium. Let's. Our, my friend Jeff was fishing a general practitioner, and it was just this beautiful classic fly. And uh, we didn't catch a fish, but um, when the overcast or when the clouds started rolling in, we, we did switch to darker flies. I do believe that you know, darker days, darker flies. Um, I think that that's a good, uh, you know, just pattern to follow. Um, but then again, you can always veer from patterns. So, um, it comes down to fish what you are confident in fishing and really, and that's what I tell everybody, like you like that fly. If you think you can, you know, you're going to catch a steelhead fish that fly. Do you remember when they used to say that, and I don't know if this is the case in Oregon, but in BC, my buddies always used to say that, say that red flies don't catch fish. And it had something to do with the spectrum and 
you know, color in the water. Did you guys ever hear that down there? I haven't, Marty. Have you heard it? Marty loves. No, I catch I mean, fish red. on red all the time. All the Ooh. time. And we do, especially oh, so. My most- our, oh, sorry. I, I, I was, I, let me just finish the summer steelhead. So summer steelhead on the Deschutes and the John Day, um, they, I mean, they see the sun 360 days a year. And I mean, it's bright, it's sunny and red is a deadly color, especially on the John Day. Like they love red flies. So whether it's sunny or cloudy. Any any fly will work as long as it's red. <laughs> okay. Even in murky water? Oh, my gosh. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. real quick, my, my number one fly is a fly that I designed that I didn't design. So um, – <laughs> Marty's just like the riddle j- man. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a joke with my good friend, Brian Sylvie, who – fishes a fly that he loves that's really a great fly but it, in 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 traditional Deschutes hair wing classic patterns you know pink and purple you know a little pink a little purple white wing and there was a fly that John Shuey tied named after an old Deschutes guide called a Rick's Revenge and the Rick's Revenge was Brian Sylvie's probably still is although I mean Brian fishes all kinds of stuff from you know night dancers to muddlers to uh, golden demons to whatever. I mean, and Brian's got a bunch of originals that are kind of his patterns, but man, that Rick's revenge was his number one go-to fly. And so I tied a mock-up of a Rick's revenge and all red, not pink and purple and white. This is what, this thing was red, red body, red squirrel wing, red everything. And it was, you know, red guinea hackle, and uh, I called it not a Rick's revenge, but I called it a redneck revenge, and I tied it out of a joke, and it just started hammering fish, like, unbelievable. Like, that thing crushed it the first year we used it on the shoots, to a point where Brian was like, oh, I'm going to tie that on, too. And have one angler fishing the Redneck Revenge and have the other one fishing the Rick's Revenge. And I pulled Brian like halfway through the season. I go, are you still doing that? He goes, the Redneck's ahead. I go, no way. At the end of the season, he claims the Rick Revenge took over the lead <laughs> on his statistics. But I don't buy it. <laughs> so winter steelheading, one day I showed up to the Sandy River I was with a really nice client of mine. His name's Pete. Pete Pete was a great guy and is a great guy. And he um, doesn't he didn't have a chance to fish a lot. He had, you know, a sick wife at home and he really t- was her caretaker. And he was past retirement age and just a, you know, a humble guy, a retired music teacher, and he didn't get the opportunity to fish very much because he was a dedicated husband and took care of his ailing wife until she passed away. And when he got a chance to fish, he would have to hire caretakers to come over. So he didn't have very um, much availability in his schedule to fish. And it was quite an ordeal. We showed up to the river 
And just out of nowhere, it was like super brown, blown out, like almost unpredictably. I don't know if there was a landslide or something had happened, but it was terrible. It was really bad. Like walk into the water, zero visibility. And I felt terrible for Pete. He had arranged this day and set up all of the caretakers for his wife. And um, I said, Pete, let's go have breakfast and call it a day. I'm not going to. I don't want to take you and charge you for nothing. And he goes, all right. So we went up and had breakfast. He goes, let's go back down and look at it, see if it got any better. We drive back down to the river, look at the river. It's not any better. And he goes, it looks great. Let's go. And I go, uh, I go, let's just, we'll go for a quick float, swing a few runs. We'll get done early. I'm still like, I can't charge you for this. Like, it's terrible, but I, I understand that you have the freedom and this is your day and maybe you just want to cast. So let's do it. So we launched the boat and I put on a, a high contrasted fly compared to the mud. I put on a black and blue fly. And I think that that black and blue is probably the ticket because it has some contrast to the dirty water. And I don't know. He, we're fishing and we fish a run and nothing. Of course, I'm not even expecting it. And literally I just feel he's out there for casting practice. And the next run, he like fishes halfway down. I don't know. I'm like looking for rocks or something. Like I'm not guiding. I'm just like, and Pete didn't knew he didn't need a guide. He was, he just needed transportation down the river. He's a really good caster and really consistent. He didn't cast far. He didn't wade deep, but man, he caught fish because he was such a consistent caster. In any case, I hear him hoop and I go, you gotta be kidding me. He's got one on. And I go down there. There's literally no visibility. And I was like, the black and blue fly was the ticket, huh? He goes, no, I put on a red one. And that fly literally, after we landed that steelhead, I put it in the water and just disappeared. Like, it had no contrast. And I was like, that is so crazy. He caught one today. So fluky. Like, there's just no way the fish could see that. Like, just a total, like you know, miracle in my mind. I like, and they all are like every steel that we ever catch. It's like the most fascinating thing ever that it actually came together and happened. And it could happen two days, five days in a row. Like they all seem like that to me. Like they all are just like this magical moment. But that particular moment with Pete that day was really crazy when he got his second fish. What? I know. Like, <laughs> Yeah, he got his second fish that day. I could not believe it. And, you know, and Mark Bachman, who, who you know, was one of my mentors growing up on the Sandy River, came floating by and he was just like, right on. Like, you guys got one in this muddy water. And, you know, they were doing the same thing we were doing, which felt like it was just casting practice. Looking for but miracles. Did you, do you think that the red. fish... Red, I'm telling you, this is this might be a game changer for me. Do you think that the fish can feel or hear the fly? Do you think it's all visual? I think. Well, they fish have. I'm just going to quickly say, fish have a lateral line, and so they feel vibrations, and so I think that they can definitely. It isn't just seeing; it's it's feeling the vibration of that movement in the water. I mean, there's Marty, that, they, they use that lateral line for everything, right? Don't they use that to, oh, what was the thing? Was it, my, 
is it their migration it helps them with? I think I heard some rumors of that or that it can connect to the moon or I don't know if I'm just diving into like some yogi stuff here, but I've heard that there are all sorts of fascinating things that that lateral line can do. Have you guys heard about the other uses for that thing? I don't know. I always go back to the old saying that I tell everybody, which is as many as we torture, they never talk. The, uh, you know, when I was in Alaska, I also did some commercial fishing up there. And one of the things that the biologists would do when we came into port was they would, they would mark their hatchery fish, not with an adipose fin clip in Prince William Sound, where I was, did some persaining, but they would, um, they would, uh, code what was called, an, I guess, an otolo, otolo? What is the ear bone called? I'm not otolith? a biologist. Yeah, I was just, Thank you. And they would change the water temperatures at the hatchery to code which pink salmon came from which hatchery. And they could look at the ear bones of these fish. And, you know, those ear bones pick up vibrations. I mean, that's what they do. That's how they hear is vibration. And that's what sound is, is vibration. Um, I like to um, look at a public swimming pool. Like, if you go into a public swimming pool, it's full of, like, kids screaming. It's full of, like, all this loud chatter that's happening all around you. And you dive into the deep end, you can still hear all of that. So sound certainly travels through water, you know. And I, I tell that, too, when two anglers are, like, yelling at each other, like, you know, you know, hey, what are you using up there? I'm like, oh man, you guys quit screaming. The fish can, that are in between you can hear you. You know, like, like I'm a firm believer that like when we're fishing for steelhead, we're hunting. Like, I don't like go out into the elk woods screaming. What kind of arrows do you have? You know, like <laughs> the elk can hear you. Like, <laughs> and so, um, so can they feel the vibration of the fly? I think so. Well, what are your know. thoughts on the on the white mouse when you're casting, like on waterborne anchors? Oh, so I definitely have some thoughts about um, um, what we do as long as it's consistent. <laughs> so, if we develop some consistency, they stop thinking of us as a predator. So, when you step into a run, I think that every steelhead in the run knows we're there. Mm-hmm. Now, what are we and are we a threat? That's the big questions that a steelhead asks itself when we step into water. So you step in and they go on high alert. Their fins flare up. They look in our direction and they go, is it a bear? Is it a wolf? Is it a person? What is this? And is it a threat to me? And then you take two steps down and you make a white mouse. And they go, and they go, okay, I don't know what it was, but I don't like it. And then you do it again and they go, well, it's not really running right at me. And like, it's not acting like a sea lion or a bear. I think it's just, who knows what that thing's doing, but it doesn't seem to be a threat. And the more you do it, the more you lull them into a sense of safety. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not like running down the run. I'm just taking two steps every 60 seconds. I'm making the white mouse consistently every 60 seconds. Every minute I do another cast 
and it lulls them into a false sense of security. That's what I think. So it's it's predictable, just like in nature. I mean, if we create consistency and if we're predictable, then that predator is going to come in and get us. Just like, you know, when, when we're hunting and, you know, when you see a deer that's, I mean, we watch deer all the time on the river. And the one that I harvested this year, like it was predictable. It was in the same place every single day. And Marty went out there five days before the season opened and he was watching that deer every single day. And at the same time, pop its head up over the mountain and it would start walking across the hill. Same time, same place. And, you know, and that's the same, you know, so when an angler creates consistency and predictability with their fly, you know, that fish is going to come in like a predator and get it. I tell you what, Mia, that deer did not like me camp there with him on the first day. It came out, it looked at me and it went back and hid. And then the second day it came out in the same place, looked at me and, you know, I'm 800 yards away from it. It knows I'm there, but it thinks I'm not there for him. And after day three, it went back to its normal routine. And by the time the opening day hunting started, we knew its pattern exactly. And it was totally comfortable with me camping there. It's why we have town deer, you know, it's like because they develop some immunity or comfortableness around humans. So, you know, so I have no doubt that everything we do. Right now, it trusted you, and it's, um, I I can hear, but it is, but you're right. Nature is about patterning. And so, if you swing that to what you just said, Mia, about, you know, us being the ones who are consistent, can our fish consistent? Like, can you pattern steelhead? And if so, how do you do that? Gosh, can you pattern steelhead? I mean, we try to, right? We try to get to know the river bottom and the rocks. And so, you know, after, you know, going down to a run a couple of times in a, and fishing that run, you fish it three, four times and you're, you know, oh, you don't get a steelhead here, but then all of a sudden, oh, you catch a steelhead in this one spot and then you catch a steelhead again in that one spot. And so, they are patterning themselves. Maybe they like that rock. So they, you know, they, they, but they're different. They're always different fish, but there's something, there's a current, there is a depression that is attracting the fish into that zone. Um, But can they, you know, I think that everyone wants to try to figure out what steelhead are going to do and what what their patterns are and we can't i mean that's the big question right now is what are they doing in the ocean why can't you know why can't we bring steelhead back like we can elk in you know in these areas or bighorn sheep you know big bighorn sheep were extirpated and they were extinct on the deschutes river and in the late 90s um hunters and angler hunters brought steelhead back or not steelhead but hunters brought bighorn sheep back to the deschutes and you know we can see animals and so they're easy to predict and see and we can manage them whereas steelhead we're still trying to figure it out where are they going in the ocean what are they doing (laughs) so they're a mystery right and that's why we love chasing them 
They are mystery. When you're fishing coastal rivers, do you try to follow the migration up? Is that even a thing? I mean, fishing a lie is one thing, right? Like, yeah, you find the depression or you find the boulder and you know that they like that speed of water. But um, I have always wondered, like since I was a teenager, maybe I should be, I know that this push of fish came through at this time on, on this tide. Maybe mm-hmm. I should be trying to follow that fish up, but I've never actually pursued that thought process. Is that something that mm-hmm. either of you have tried? Well, we don't fish. We honestly don't fish coastal rivers uh, that much. I mean, occasionally I might make it out to, uh, you know, the coast or the Trask. Um, I think the last time I winter steelhead fished on the coast was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. So I don't have a lot of experience there. So it's a little bit different. What about rising water versus dropping water? I've always found that I have much better Mm -hmm. luck as the water's dropping. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? 100%. So that is watching the gauge is like watching the stock market. And when it's raining and the river is rising, you're like, okay, this isn't good. You know, the fish are going to be moving. And then it's, then it levels off and then it starts to drop. And when it keeps dropping, you, you, when you start fishing a river over and over and over again, you start to, find out what that sweet spot is. And every river is different, Um, you know, depending on the shape of the river bottom and the flow of the river and the source of the water. And so, you know, is there, you know, snowpack affecting the the, the runoff or is it just rain? But um, yeah, so that sweet spot is when it's dropping and fish will move in and they'll hold in a lie and they'll slow down. And that's when a person could be more successful. Sure. You want to add anything? Yeah. I mean, in winter steelheading, uh, water flow is terribly important to our success or lack of. And, um, you know, high waters come, it brings in fresh fish. Every time. Maybe it's a lot. Maybe it's just a few. But fresh new fish are there with each high water. And they come in as it's rising. And they come in when it's peaked. And then the river starts to drop. And they start to slow down and hold in prime lies, and especially right when it starts to drop. And me and I have had really good success at all levels of the drop, meaning it could be really high, like really, really, really like scary high, but have been dropping for two or three days, and the color is great. And we've gone out when you would never think, like it's almost dangerous, like I don't recommend it. Like, buckle up the life jackets. You're going down a river that is acting like the Grand Canyon type of river. And we've had really good success on the drop at really high levels. The same can be said if the river just bumps up, like, just a little bit and then starts to drop. But the best success is just right on the drop because those fish are generally right in the sweet spot of where your fly will swing on the rivers that we focus on. You know, the 
the summer steelhead river is a really consistent like the deschutes is is controlled by a dam it's almost the same flow year in and year out we have very little fluctuations in water flow we only get 10 inches of rain out here in the desert a year so it's not like we get like these you know fluctuating water levels in the summer what you find is you find the same lies produce fish year in and year out because the levels are the same. And so, you know, the things you notice more or less on the summer rivers is, you know, they're a little bit more affected by the sun, especially when you're targeting them with floating lines. And the, the way that the rivers that we guide on here, they, it's, they run backwards. They run, our rivers run from south to north they run backwards to what you would think but you know because everybody thinks well you know they're running uphill if they're running north (laughs) but they run north here which means the sun is in their eyes almost all day long and so they do not like the sun in their eyes we've noticed just from tons of fishing and we're not the only ones that notice this everybody that fishes these rivers on the regulars from the old timers back in the day to the new kids today that the fishing the shade in the summer on our rivers specifically is really really great for floating line work and so um, once the sun comes up mia is the only one that catches steelhead when the sun comes up with a floating line She, she she goes against the odds and she thinks that um that they bite just as good when the sun comes up and she uh, consistently proves me wrong. Desert steelhead is something I do. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> well, if you guys are in Moppin now, are you guys on the Deschutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So are you done with the Sandy or you, how far of a no. commute is it to the Sandy? Hour, hour and a half. And we, we have a travel trailer that we crash in when we, and we book multiple days in a row and it, it's parked over there, and, uh, and thanks to our friend Dave, we've got a great place to park it and um, and kind of just have like a, a satellite office there where we just come home, do the dishes, uh, pack the boat for the next day, and go right back out, book three or four to five or six days straight over there, then come back over um, and enjoy home for the weekends. I've heard from quite a few members that you guys have got, um, or that, that they're booked to fish with you guys. How are you looking for guided trips this year? Do you still have space? Mm, um, not, we don't have a lot of space. Yeah. Well, that's our, our winter. So winter steelhead, we fish from January through beginning of April and we're pretty booked right now. There's a couple days in March and April and then, uh, summer steelhead, we fish, um, typically, from August through November, but, um, we'll see. We haven't booked any trips yet this year. Um, we're waiting to see, um, what the, you know, predictions are for the runs and, you know, what our wildlife managers are going to do and if they're going to shut down the fishery again. So, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. If, if, if there aren't any steelhead, we're going to, uh, take people checker hunting. Or just go enjoy the river and go rafting and go hiking. And there's so much more. Watch, watch bighorn sheep. Bighorn sheep in the rut are insane, like, to watch. They're so cool. So much fun. Word trophy hunting has a stigma that's bad. But 
I think that that stigma needs to be understood too. So trophy hunting a bighorn sheep or an elk or a deer is truly to hunt an old one. And the old rams, so the average bighorn sheep on the Deschutes, for instance, only lives to be about seven years old. And the most dominant rams are the rams that are between the age of seven and ten. Out of all the rams ever harvested on the Deschutes, the oldest has been twelve. And um, and there's only a few, maybe four or five, that have been harvested that have been 10. The average ram, like I said, is seven. If you, if you're understanding the life cycle of these sheep, what happens is the, the oldest, biggest rams do the most fighting. And the rut is all about uh, establishing dominance so that you, so that that sheep can, mate and spread its genetics at the end of a hard long rut the oldest biggest most dominant sheep usually die of starvation because they've expelled all of their fat reserves and all of their energy into procreating and and reproducing and that opens up an opportunity for the next generation of rams to spread their genetics. And so what we don't want to do is, is especially um, important to the biologists and the managers of these herds is to take out the young ones or take out the middle of the pack. We want to take out the ones that are going to die of starvation or predators because they're so weak. And so it's almost a more ethical assignment to be a trophy hunter than it is to, you know, just shoot anything. Um, and so um, that stigma, I think, uh, it's good to understand. And the same exact thing happens in the world of almost every animal, from elk uh, to deer to every critter out there where the, the dominant oldest usually dominate the gene pool until they die of starvation or predator. So, and, I, and so the bighorn sheep are really fascinating. It's interesting. You think about, you know, us as anglers, anglers are always wanting to catch the bigger fish, right? You want to catch the, 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 the 15 pound buck. You don't want to catch the seven pound and, you know, and, and the number of years, I mean, a, a 15 pound buck on the Sandy is a two salt fish. I mean, that, that fish has gone through a lot, you know, versus the one salt fish. And uh, so I don't know. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> the, the parallel. Um, on that note, I, I can't let that little nugget of information by. Can you explain to people listening what you mean by one salt, two salt, even three salt? Cause it's very interesting. Yeah. So oh, a one salt fish uh, has, um, they, so a, a steelhead um, will, from from egg, so when they hatch, they will spend one to two years uh, in, in, their, in the river, you know, growing up, and then they will migrate out, and then they will spend, uh, a winter fish will spend, you know, on average about two years out in the ocean, and then it will go back to their home river. And so 
that return, it makes it a one salt fish. So when it goes to the ocean twice, and then so it goes out, and then it comes back, and then it goes out again and comes back, then it's a two salt. So it's it's spent it's spent a two salt fish has spent um you know four four to five years in the ocean versus a one salt is you know two years in the ocean. Does that does that work? Yep, absolutely. I just think they're the coolest things. Um, so look, the two of you, I feel like I could talk to you both for I could 10 hours, you. just in an episode alone. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mia, you and I are probably do honestly for, we're probably do for an on the record, just us chat as well I, as an off the record, just us and us and we would love, I just would love to spend time with you someday soon. So it's been a long time. We, so. Likewise, mm-hmm. we will arrange that. Before we wrap this up, is there anything that you guys would mm-hmm. like to add or to ask me? Well, that's it. So, you know, just, uh, yeah, I can't wait to connect and, you know, meet your daughter and your family and hang out and spend time with you. So, Likewise. Well, we'll do it again soon. I will include all the links in the write-up. Thank you to both of you for being amazing and yeah. we'll connect soon. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. okay. Love you. Bye guys. Bye. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.